Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. And now for the Manchester East All-Stars, batting third, first base, Patrick Ruddy. Ruddy, did that ever happen in your Little League life, Patrick Ruddy? Wow, I, this is a bad start, dude, because um, I was the nerd kid who did not play baseball. I was never uh, a He was a geologist. Basically he was a geologist that went to Dartmouth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Tripping Over the Barrel. Super excited for today. Tim and I have Patrick Ruddy, a longtime friend of ours in the industry, and also, randomly for me, somebody else from New Hampshire. Grew up in New Hampshire, went to Dartmouth, and has ended up in the oil and gas industry in a number of roles. I think you guys will find this episode super, super entertaining. And uh, I believe that Tim has a question for you, similar to one he asked me at one point. Yeah. So, Patrick, in the very first introduction to this uh, podcast series, uh, way back whenever that got aired, the first question we asked out of the bat to Jeremy was, how does a young Jewish boy from New Hampshire, find his way into the oil and gas business. So I'm asking you, how does how do you enter the oil and gas business coming out of New Hampshire and Dartmouth? Yeah, so that path might seem sort of convoluted, and I, and I, I guess the answer is it probably <laughs> is. First of all, thanks for having me on, guys. This is um, I'm sure this is going to be a blast. If it's not, I don't know. I'll complain later. But um, <laughs> so first of all, let's let's clear up some misconceptions. You don't have to be a young Jewish boy from New Hampshire to make it into the oil and gas industry. Um, there's only one. There's only one who's made it into the industry. There's only like six of us, as, I, as far yeah. as I can count, <laughs> that's made it into the oil and gas industry from New Hampshire, New Hampshire. And Jeremy, you might be the only Jewish guy. I haven't asked the others, but um, you guys know Debbie Sycamore? Debbie Sycamore's from New Hampshire. She's Very in the nice. oil and gas industry. She's a, she's no. a badass. There's I need you, to meet her, me, though. Debbie. There's like three others. I grew up in the woods. And guess what else there is in the woods in New Hampshire? Rocks. Thank Granted. you for that answer. Well, I took a sip of my. That was good. Fashion. That was a good answer. That was a really Old good fight. answer. What? Worth noting before we jump into his geology nerddom, we're taking this call from all over the place right now. I'm here in Denver. Tim is in Houston, as usual. Patrick is in a significantly different time zone. Where are you at today, my friend? I'm in Edinburgh, Scotland, where it's old-fashioned time. Nice. So nine sixteen. This is the after dinner drink. So living in Scotland, um, which we'll get to in a second. We'll get to that. I'm sure. So I'm living out in the woods. I've got a half mile walk down the road to catch the bus. There's rocks all over the place. My dad was kind of into rocks. So I was kind of into rocks. Anyway, I go to college, go to Dartmouth, wicked fancy. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be an engineer. This is going to be freaking great. I love math. I love science. And so I think I'm just going to take all the math and science I can take. In fact, I'll take honors and I'll take it all at once because that'll get it out of the way. Um, And then also I discovered that the fraternities had a lot of beer let's say. Uh, yeah, Still do, on, I bet. On tap and, uh, it's, you know, sort of minimal hours, like 24-7. So my really heavy math and science schedule turned into just a whole bunch of Cs, which were generous grades. And then I took a bunch of science fiction and Greek, recalibrated and started and decided I was going to be an earth sciences major. So that's what I did at Dartmouth. And, uh, but I wasn't convinced that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life until... One of the grad students in the earth sciences department got an offer, like a full-time job offer from a little company. Wait, wait, so this is like 19, you know, something. This is, this is 19. So, so how did the offer come? Was yeah. the, uh, did the offer come via 
the Pony Express or uh, was was there a, the mail? Uh, seriously, was it mailed or how were offers received? They came by canoe up the Connecticut River, dude. You know, <laughs> your state. <laughs> yes, I think it actually did come in the, this old thing called the Postal Service. This with a stamp and the, everything. With a stamp and everything, right? I mean, and like a little Amico flame and oval on the on logo on oh. the front. You, know, oh, you love sure. it, right? Yeah. And uh, the offer was for thirty-two flipping thousand dollars a year. So this is like nineteen eighty-seven. Wow, this is pretty sweet money. It's nineteen eighty-seven, nineteen eighty-eight. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. Because <laughs> how could you spend that much money in like a lifetime? And uh, so, joking aside, I mean, I loved earth sciences. I still do. Um, it's totally a passion of mine. And I don't mind making money. And so I, uh, I eventually figured out a way I didn't go straight to grad school, but I went to grad school after taking a year off and doing a whole bunch of, you know, just messing around fishing, mostly riding my yeah. motorcycle, a bunch of stuff like that. But I uh, went back to grad school and chased it down and became one of the six people from New Hampshire who ever made it in the industry. Where'd you go to grad school? A little place called Stanford out in California. So I, I oh, East nice. coast, West coast and split the difference and landed in Denver at the end of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, your path has always been super intriguing to me. Uh, you've, you've always been certainly a character in the industry. I want to go back even before college to, you know, not just growing up around rocks, but where did you live? Did you grow up in uh, Manchester? Pembroke. I went to high school in Pembroke. Manchester. Pembroke, which is pretty much firmly in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there, I guess there's cities, but yeah, cities Concord. there are like... Dude, we, Concord only has 40,000 people. Well, so Pembroke with its 5,000 people borders Concord. <laughs> you know, we're big. You got a mall there. <laughs> there's a mall in Concord, if you can call it that. <laughs> Was there you, a mall there saw, when you were there? Um, <laughs> no, you went down to Manchester to the Mall of New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was such a huge day on Saturdays. See, I mean, I'm sure some people on this on this can relate. My kids certainly cannot since we have malls within <laughs> eight minute drive in all directions. But it was such a huge deal. It would be like a Saturday morning. They're like, guys, we're going to the mall today. And if we were lucky, we might even go down to the Pheasant Lane Mall, which is basically in oh, yeah. Massachusetts like on yeah. the border. But they put it there because everyone from Massachusetts can just come to New Hampshire and not pay taxes on yeah. what they buy and just drive, <laughs> drive it home. Jeremy, did you go to the mall in New Hampshire? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Loved Did it. you go roller skating there? I don't think so. Yeah, that's because you're young. Maybe it was gone by the time you got there. There was roller I vaguely skating remember. in the mall, and that was the thing in like, I don't know, eighth grade, ninth grade, something like that. That's awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. So you break into geology, and I see, you know, a lot of geophysics in your background. And, you know, it strikes me the geophysicists, especially in the early days, got to get into some pretty cool places. Jeremy and I have talked about various travels in oil and gas. Where's kind of the craziest place you've been for a shoot or something like that? Where have you, you traveled for exploration? <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah. So I, d I did pursue a geophysics degree at Stanford because I had taken a geophysics course at Dartmouth. Eventually, I'll answer your question, Tim, if we're lucky. Oh, we're good. And, this is your uh, show, baby. <laughs> it's just not right. <laughs> and uh, I, so I was, I was, Graduating from um, from Stanford right when Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait in 1990, mm -hmm. and uh, oil prices had spiked to some something stupid like 100, 120, 140, and uh, everybody was hiring. And you know, and Stanford doesn't look bad on your resume, blah blah blah. And so I had lots of job offers all over the place. You know, sweet places like Midland and Baco and <laughs> Houston and Dallas and. Uh, and I had one from Denver, from Amico. Um, nice. So I took it partly on the premise 
that as a baby geophysicist working in the Denver office of Amico, I'd go to some cool places, right? First nope. place yeah. I yeah, get assigned to <laughs> is the Mid-Continent Business Unit. So I get to go to Southeast Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Which to this day actually stands out as one of the crazier slash weirder places I've ever, ever, uh, ever shot seismic. Um, it's, it's a little bit like deliverance without the swamp. Um, <laughs> be- beautiful I mean, they did this whole Tiger time. King. Yeah, Tiger King, the right? Tiger King thing looks right. It's there. That's the Tiger same King, I think Maybe a little over toward Ardmore, but um, really similar. Uh, although I'll, I will put, I will put Southeast Oklahoma, the Arcoma Basin, and the, the Thrustfold Belt down there, the ridges and the valleys in the springtime with the dogwoods and the red buds and the green nice. of those mountains. I'll put it up against anything. It's amazing down there. Yeah, and the red dirt too. It's a nice contrast. And the red dirt. Yeah, my, my family's from Southeast Arkansas, so I you empathize know. with that all the way. Mm-hmm. You know. The craziest place I ever shot seismic, though, would be the desert of Saudi Arabia. Um, and we're jumping Whoa. ahead in, in the timeline. But um, ended up shooting some seismic in Saudi Arabia. Was um, Actually, to be fair, this was someone else's shoot, and I was going out um, to, do some, to, to do some field QC with the operations group. And I went out with this guy. Oh, man. I can see this dude's face and I can't remember his name. doesn't matter. Saudi guy. Great guy. Abdelaziz. And uh, we're cruising along in the desert. We're off the actual chute. We're trying to get over to where the, where the truck is with the, with the doghouse. And we are just zipping across the desert because that's what you do. And this is, let's see, we moved there in June. This was probably July. And did I mention this is Saudi Arabia? In July, yes. okay, so 145 degrees. Yeah, 140 degrees. So you guys are aiming just a little bit high, but it was probably 125. Um, no exaggeration. And we were out there <laughs> in nowhere, and uh, Abdulaziz is flying in the uh, in the field vehicle. We're kind of going over these dunes, and the the, the, the little Barkan dunes out there are. I don't know, the slip faces. These are like those crescent-shaped dunes. That's a Barkan dune, and so you go up the backside of it, which is a ramp, and then you hit that arcuate front face of it, the slip face, and then you go flying down it. Yeah. Um, and unless you're careful, you kind of go <laughs> a little bit in the air as you go over the top. And, and hopefully on your wheels the whole time. Hopefully on your wheels. The problem was this one time Abdul Aziz forgot about the wheels. <laughs> and, and we hit and came to a, a very sudden halt, uh, kind of nose in on this dune. And we look around. Well, first of all, we, we extricate ourselves from the vehicle. Because we're scared, <laughs> you know, a little bit of, <laughs> little bit of uh, adrenaline jolt. Uh, we extricate ourselves from the vehicle, which, as it turns out, was probably the most dangerous part. Because when you're in a vehicle that's nose in the sand and it's unstable and you shift the weight around, sometimes vehicles are known to flip on top of people. That didn't happen, so that was good. Mm. <laughs> we're standing there. We had a, uh, a one-liter bottle of water that was about half full, so that was good. And uh, the nearest shade was about oh, half a kilometer away like two palm trees, mm-hmm. no joke. And we're on the radio. We So the radio was still working. And so we radioed All into right. the doghouse and said, we're not exactly sure where we are. We kind of went left and right. And then we headed toward the sand. <laughs> and there's a palm tree half a kilometer tree. away. <laughs> yeah. And um, we were worried. We walked over to those palm trees, sat in the shade, drank all the water. Um, and, you know, the story turned out happily for those of us who are happy that I'm still around. Um, they, they did come and find us, but it was so sketchy because you basically, you start dying as soon as you're, as soon as you step outside. So um, yeah, I've done some seismic in some weird places. Wow. That's, that's scary. So how long did it take him to come out? 
It wasn't long, but it was terrifying. It was probably 45 minutes. Yeah. But you know, you're in 125 degrees, you, you can't cool off. And so your body is just sweating and sweating and sweating and sweating. And, um, and there's, no, there's no way to give anybody directions. Go to nah. the third sand dune and take a left. Zippo, zero yeah. landmarks. Yeah. Wow. Thankfully, we were a little bit close to a uh, one of the many pipelines. It might have even been a defunct pipeline, but there was a tiny bit of a landmark that we weren't super far from. But still, it wasn't that easy for them to find us. And if they hadn't found us, I think it could have turned out poorly. Wow. Yeah. That's so that close. Else. I wasn't aware of that. That's crazy. I like that yeah, turned that out poorly. It's an understatement. <laughs> it turned out poorly. So every day, every day is a bonus day for, for Mr. Ruddy. So yeah, we, we both live in Denver. And because of that, we've been able to hang out at various networking events. And it was certainly, I, I don't want to say disappointing, but you know, a, a bummer when you said you're moving to Scotland, but, mm. but I get it. Want to know what it's like working for an oil and gas company that is certainly large, but is based here in North America. Most of their employees are in the U.S. What is it like being so uh, removed from the the home office? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I hadn't expected that one. You're going to make me cry. I miss my people. <laughs> <laughs> serious, man. We're not videoing, are we? Because you get locked down hair and like a little misty eye. Um, no, we have I'm- to get more listeners first. That's what that's what the guys told us. So, and then you can go video. Then we can go video. Then we can okay, go well, video. If the barber opens up, you know what, for you guys, I won't get my hair cut. I'll wait. I'll wait. <laughs> it's a little bit weird. So I, I work for Inveris, as you know, and um, Inveris is, we're a tech company, right? Really, if I had to classify us, we're a tech company that happens to do energy. Hmm. Tech companies typically have, let's just say, slightly more progressive cultures than oil and gas operating companies. No and, doubt. Um, and so we have long had a culture of work from home if you need to, come into the office if you need to, get your work done. If you don't, we'll probably fire your ass. And uh, <laughs> so there's been a lot, there's a lot of freedom and flexibility and accountability. And so I wasn't always in the office like every day, but I was in the office a lot. And I, you know, you know me, I like people. So being over here, yeah. I miss people. Uh, Edinburgh up here in Scotland is not the, it's certainly not the hub of oil and gas at all. Like that's London and Aberdeen. Mm. Um, so there's not much of an oil and gas community here. And I moved over here, got here on February 14th, um, flew back to the States in early March to get my visa stuff squared away, came back here and then locked down. Yeah. I'm wow. the timing there. You got pretty close to, yeah, you got pretty close to having to sit in a, in an airplane hangar somewhere waiting for your 14 days. Yeah, I did. So, um, it hasn't been a great time to, to build the network over here. You know, like we've all now learned how to Zoom and how to Teams, how to <laughs> do all of it. Um, happily, our, our culture, this was sort of part of the point there. Happily, our culture was such that we did a lot of that anyway. I mean, we have offices in Bangalore. We've had offices over here in the UK. We've got offices. We've got people in the Philippines and Spain and you know Texas and Calgary and blah, blah, blah. So we do yeah. a lot of that anyway. So it's just resulted in me not having a lot of my peeps around me to kind of bullshit with. And it's resulted in me working kind of a shifted day where uh, a lot of what I do, because oh, right. I still do a lot of work with, with folks in the States. Um, so oftentimes I'm up even as late as 9.30, like now. So so do you, as it drastically shifted your hours, do you think of it more as like a 10 to 7 type day or, you know, 11 to 8? It's, it's more like 8 in the morning till 10 p.m. at night kind of a day. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, I don't mean to make, I don't mean that's not meant to sound like a martyr. It's, but seriously, it's a, it's a 7 or 8 in the morning to 10 p.m. kind of day. But how bad do I feel when I take my hour and a half run in the middle of the day 
and maybe sit around and, you know, play words with friends. Not that bad. Right. Or so, you're just, when you go roaming around a golf course in Scotland or something. Or when I just go roaming because, you know, we've got the right to roam over here. Or when I'm doing homeschooling um, with the nine-year-old who lives in our home. Uh, you know, the, so there's my day is a big blend these days. Yeah. Go ahead, so I wanted, to, I wanted to go back to before the, the call here, we discussed one of our previous episodes. And uh, we it was the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha episode, if you're interested so we mentioned a story in there with uh, a friend of ours who was in the call, a mutual friend now with who was going to bring around a, a uh, motivational device to make sure that the AFEs moved around the, the company well. Do you remember that meeting with Marsha and Dan and I? So I remember the meeting. Uh, I remember the meetings with, with all y'all. I wish <laughs> I could say that I remembered the actual comment, but it was actually better that I didn't because I proceeded to just laugh my ass off when I heard it in the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha segment. Just per- happy to know that I was there. The best part about it, even after all of that, we still actually got business with Aspect slash Hungarian Horizon, which was another thing that always baffled me. I, I never thought that would be trying to sell software to a Hungarian operating company. What was that like trying to, to operate oil field or develop an oil field in Hungary? Oh, it was fantastic. So most people do not know, uh, and why would they? Hungary's been producing oil and gas for, um, you know, I used to have this pattern down. I think it used to be 80 years when I said it. So now it's 90 years. Hungary's been around for a long time in the oil and gas biz. Um, yeah. the, the Pannonian Basin for the nerds out there. I don't know how many nerds you guys are going to draw to your podcast because mostly it's stories about cursing and drinking as far as I can tell. <laughs> I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, some, there's some nerds. There's some nerds. I said bar can do. I said slip face. Um, Maybe I could throw in some other other stuff. Um, (laughs) The Pannonian Basin is this basin where all the sediments are ripping off the mountains that are going up all around the edges of what turns out to be Hungary for logical reasons of it's easy to defend a place that's surrounded by mountains. In fact, the bit of the Pannonian Basin that goes over into the far western bits of Romania is very ethnically Hungarian, even though now it's part of Romania. So, Pannonian Basin, big oil and gas province for, for basically a century. And the story over there was, you know, communist country. How creative was the oil and gas industry in a communist regime, let's say, in the 50s and 60s? I'll answer for you. Not terribly. <laughs> and um, at Aspect, which had made a living using 3D seismic and AVO, seismic uh, AVO technology to find basically accumulations that have been left behind, uh, non-structural, little stratigraphic amplitude anomalies in the Gulf Coast and, and found tons and tons of it. Give Alex Cranberg and Paul Favre and, and the others there um, all the credit they deserve. Hmm. They realized at some point along the way, it's too long a story for the podcast, but that basically the Pannonian Basin was a really similar. Hmm. And having had a non-create, one state-run company exploring over there for years, um, hmm. there was just a crap ton of stuff that had been left behind. So we were over there shooting 3D, uh, finding amplitude anomalies, drilling them, and killing it. Wow. And um, it was super fun. I could not claim responsibility really personally for for a whole lot of what we did over there. I I was blessed with a team of amazing geoscientists. Um, if I start naming them by name, it won't be fair because I'll leave someone out, but just some great geophysicists and geologists um, who did a great job finding oil and gas. And we had a we had about a two-thirds hit rate. Um, success rate on on those amplitude anomalies over there. One of the most interesting, so it was curious because one of the most interesting things was some of those deals were in partnership with Mole, the Hungarian company. And 
You might imagine how they felt having basically owned the oil and gas business there for the previous 80 years, had us show up in these stupid, stupid blocks, shooting seismic in moronic areas, and then drilling wells that were 20 BCF of gas, <laughs> um, which was a nice find, 20, 20, 30, 40 BCF of gas. They were wow. embarrassed and frustrated. <laughs> and so there was a massive amount of sort of cultural, corporate cultural conflict at the same time as there was this, I, w- I don't even want to say begrudging respect. Um, so it was interesting to try to navigate that, right? To try to not be the jackass American who shows up and actually gets it right. And at the same time, you know, acknowledge the, the good work that the Hungarian geologists had done because they had done some great work that was foundational to the stuff that we were doing over there. It was a really interesting uh, culture clash, but the story is still playing out over there of you know, new discoveries being made um, in places where everybody thought they were done. Interesting. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a story that I hadn't heard, but that's, it's cool to hear your perspective. And I'm curious too, was the drilling done by your employees or did you have contractors and, and services people that were already existing or did you just send everyone over there and did it all yourself? There are European drilling companies that uh, sometimes we used. Uh, eventually, for lots of reasons, we formed our own drilling company, Central European Drilling. Um, and we had two rigs of our own. Uh, it was, a, it was mm. another aspect affiliate. And so we used those guys mostly. Oh, nice. You know, and so, I set the thing up like it was a big culture clash. It really is nothing different than what happened in the States when you went from drilling structural traps, structural prospects, to drilling stratigraphic prospects. It was it was part of that evolution. It's just that in the States, it was Americans who just kept doing it. Oh, structures. Oh, look, stratigraphic stuff. Oh, look. Um, and over there, we just happened to be you know, happened to be a different set of people who came in to do the stratigraphic stuff first. So you've been all over the map, man. You've seen the highs of this industry. You've gone international. You've gone domestic. And at one point, you drove Uber. Tell me a little bit about your experience driving Uber and uh, what precipitated that and what it was like. Oh, man. I'll try to be quick on this one. Or am I opening up, am I opening up uh, some it- really old, bad wounds right now? No, you're opening up a stage of my life that uh, I wouldn't have written into the story if I were the author of it, but <laughs> that I am super stoked happened. So I was at Fidelity ENP. I mean, I'll just, I'll just tell you. Um, I was at Fidelity ENP. I was the VP of Exploration New Ventures. It was a pretty badass job. I got it pretty young. I was, I don't know, I was in my early 40s. Um, had a team of whatever, 15 or not, maybe not quite 20 people. And it was a great job. You know, I, I fought with my boss like pretty much every minute of every day for most of the time. <laughs> but other than that, it was great. Um, and we were doing some great stuff. And I ended up, you know, with, it was a team effort, but we built a great team. I, I was kind of on top of the world. Let's just put it this way. I was making great money. And I don't think I realized how cocky I had gotten, probably. Uh, but <laughs> I can happen. pretty cocky. This can happen. It can happen. And uh, yeah. even to, you know, non-Jewish kids from New Hampshire. And uh, so... <laughs> or even people not from New Hampshire. Or even but, possibly. Uh, potentially. Potentially. I don't know. I haven't thought about this, this big of a sphere yet, but I, I got you. We could get outside of the six people. So Fidelity EMP was owned by MDU Resources. MDU Resources decides at the end of 2014 that, that they really don't want to be in the oil and gas business anymore. And uh, anyway, I get laid off. So I decide I'm going to do a startup with a couple of buddies. So we started up Alcova Resources. Powder River Basin focused, uh, went around, talked to all the private equity folks, got, without going into detail, very close to getting funded, but did not get funded. Mm-hmm. And so we self-funded for a long, long time. We worked our asses off. We looked at deals. We made offers on deals. We eventually died sort of a slow, whimpering, curled up death, um, <laughs> running out of money and energy and, and give a 
hoot. <laughs> and so totally. I, uh, I ended up sitting out on the back patio of my home with my, um, with my wife at the time and uh, just crying, literally crying in my beer. Oh. And she said uh, to her oh. eternal credit, she said, one of your buddies, Rod, he's, he's been driving Uber. Why don't you just go drive some Uber? <laughs> yes. And, and I was like, uh, you know, I would have said, you know, the, the answer to any question at that point was yes. And so I thought, fine, I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> and uh, because, you know, we were far from, um, we were far from poor people, but there hadn't been a lot of cash flow. Let's put it that way. Yeah. For, for quite a while. So I ended up driving Uber full time, seven months and Lyft. Wow. Yep. From late June of 2016 until February, early February of 2018, I drove Uber and Lyft um, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. 110 rides a, a week. Uh, I would get up early. I would get up at three or four in the morning. I would do, I would catch airport rides. I lived down in Littleton at the time and I would just get yep. in my car, make a cup of tea, get in the car at three fifteen or four fifteen, um, and start catching rides. And I loved it. Nice. I went from, I mean, from you know, super fancy VP of whatever and Mr. <laughs> Startup boy. And now I'm a freaking driver for people. And I loved it. I loved it. Um, what what, drove, what about it? Go ahead. Uh, yeah. What, what about it? I, love? I, lo- um, I, have an, I had a nice car, really nice yeah. car. Um, so I liked driving my car. I liked driving, period. Um, I got to see yeah. all parts of Denver, nice and not so nice. And I don't care. I'm into all of it that I had never seen before. I got to meet all kinds of people that I wouldn't have crossed paths with otherwise. I mean, I picked up the dancers at the strip bars when they were done. I picked up the lawyers who were going to the airport. I picked up yep. the moms who were trying to get to their kid to after school. I picked up drunk dudes down in Lodo. I mean, I picked up everybody everywhere. Fancy people, not fancy people. Short, tall, fat, skinny, all colors, every every person. It was like a rainbow of people that sat in that car with me. And yeah. it's like the hairdresser. You just start talking or, or you know, the barber or you know, whatever the equivalent is. You just, you just start collecting stories. You just start you – know, like people just open up in the car and, um, and Jeremy, you know this about me, Tim, you may too, you may know it. I'm a God guy. I'm a Jesus freak. And, uh, and I started feeling like it was a ministry. Like it was, I would just pray for God to <laughs> seriously, I'm just pray for God. To, I'd be like, okay, God, that person was interesting. Who's next? Bring him, uh, bring, bring me someone I can, I can just kind of shine a little ray of sunshine into their life. And, uh, so that's how I went around. And uh, I mean, I got more Uber stories than it's worth getting into, but the industry's famous for being, small. Did you ever pick up anybody you knew? Oh, numerous times. Uh, numerous times. Nice. Uh, numerous times. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What's that like? Uh, that actually was a good part of what ultimately I think was the lesson for me in all of it, which was a little dose of humility for Mr. Fancy Boy. Yeah. So I get a call one night up at Red Rocks. I had actually just dropped someone off at Red Rocks and I was uh, driving back down and actually, that's not true. That's a different story. I was cruising around in near Morrison and I get a call from some guy named Rob who's up there and I'm on my way up there trying to find him, which was a cluster back in those days. Turns out it's a guy in the industry. Totally knew him. Um, nice. Similarly, I'm up in Rhino one time and I go to pick up somebody named Alexandra and I get there and I'm greeting her as she gets in the car. And I'm like, hey, Alex, hi. Uh, me, you know, Patrick. Pick up at a hotel downtown one time. It's a it's a bunch of gals leaving an industry party. So I ran into a lot of people. One of them was uh, I got a call for some guy named Dan, kind of in in kind of close in southeast Denver, and yep. uh, and I go to pick him up, 
And I'm like, this guy looks kind of familiar. We start chatting on the way and I figure out, I don't know. What are the rules guys? Can I say his name or not? Oh yeah. Let's say his name. There's no problem. He's going to be on. He's got stories galore. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And so finally I go, wait a minute. Are you Dan Shikiar? He goes, yeah. Are you Patrick Ruddy? I'm like, yeah. And, and you know, so he's the guy who was, you know, swinging a cue ball at someone's head, uh, <laughs> the meaning and aspect. And uh, yeah, so it was a small world. There were a lot of small world things in that, in that gig. I mean, technology had come a long way from requiring a cue ball and a sock to notify someone. And here you are driving up on Uber. All you had to do was communicate via an app, right? Yeah. Yeah. Leaps and bounds from, from the cue ball. I wish I had remembered that story at the time because I, I would have totally... <laughs> No, but I'm sure he's he's super engaging. I'm sure that was fun. And and you are super engaging as well, actually. That's one of the things that I I don't want to say I miss it, but I do do enjoy those conversations, particularly if I land somewhere and I have like a drink or two on the plane and it's somebody who's who speaks Spanish, right? Because my Spanish is like respectable when I've had a couple drinks. You know, I'm not like uh, I get a little too nervous. Maybe when I'm when I, whatever, I have a couple of drinks. Here I am, I'm fluent in Spanish, and the Uber is the perfect place to do it because they're just oh, like, yeah. doing a great job. You know, they they can't go anywhere. So, yeah, that's a good call. And you know, Uber drivers are a bit like taxi drivers. There there end up being a lot of uh, a lot of immigrants who are driving the taxis. Um, they have amazing stories if you'll ask them their stories. Like, how did you get here? Is a great story to ask your Uber Lyft driver. You'll get stories of, of dudes who have, who have, they're the people who went and stayed in the, in the refugee camp for 17 yeah. years while their thing got processed and then they got here and they had to pay their plane fare back and they didn't speak English and all that stuff. So yeah, I get in the car yeah, now and they're, they're all brothers. Little perspective, little, little humility, little humility, right? Not, mm-hmm. not a part of your life you would have expected, but it just shows you where, you know, where things can go. There was a point actually where I was close to doing it. Similar situation was could sort of see a job was coming to an end. I'm going to be without money for a little bit. I signed up, right, to be an Uber driver, but never actually turned the thing on. But I mean, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of people were, were there. I wonder if COVID's probably going to change that a little bit. Yeah. When you applied, they sent me a notice because they saw that we were linked in together and they asked me if you should. Like, we, and I said, no. We need, <laughs> <laughs> we, need a, we need a reference. Can this guy drive? No, he cannot. Actually, no he's, a, he's a shithead. Um, so after, after driving Uber, you surfaced at that point, resurfaced, I guess I should say, from the industry standpoint to what was Drilling Info and is now in Veris, which I thought was interesting because Drilling Info in particular was a forward-thinking organization. And you certainly always were someone that was looking to embrace technology when you were on the operator side. So it was fun to see you come over. I'm curious a little bit, like, what do you do and how have you been able to combine all of your experience on the operator side and, and uh, put that toward the software? Yeah, that's a big question. The answer to the question of what, what do I do even though I had a different title when I started, um, I do technical sales. The job that they first gave me, the job that I applied for, because I found it on Indeed.com because I needed a job. And I was chasing a number of things. And, and uh, the, the DI one was the one that really came through. It was product manager, which you guys know what that is. But I, had, I did not know what that was. Um, but it was product manager for this little piece of software they had called Transform, which is geology interpretation, geophysical interpretation, engineering stuff. And then this really nerdy multivariate analytics stuff which turns out to be the thing uh, in the industry, um, you know, these last five, six years. So what I quickly discovered was that I had, again, I I think, you know, in the same way that you can't be blamed for for the way that you are, you also don't get credit for it. So I don't get credit for being the way that I am. (laughs) But being a people person, being just sort of naturally curious, having 25 years in the industry, um, and having used pretty much every other piece of software under the sun except this transform software, 
in pretty short order, I dove into it and discovered the multivariate analytics part of it and discovered that I loved that part of it and that I could use the software to figure out questions that people in the industry would actually ask because like, I think like them. Um, and so that turned out to be a really winning setup for me uh, and ended up uh, doing a, just a scads and scads of talks at you know the conferences and professional society meetings and, and technical sessions and, and this and that. I wasn't that good a product manager. The product manager, as you guys know, is supposed to you know, build the roadmap for what we're going to build in the software and why we're going to build it and then just be like really attentive to detail and work with the developers to get it built. And um, without going into the details, I wasn't really good at that. Um, I was lucky <laughs> to work with a small development team of experts who I could basically say, you know what we should do? We should build a thing that calculates well spacing. And I think it should look kind of like this. You want to give it a shot? And they'd come back a month later and go, what do you think? And, and then we'd, you know, iterate from there. So they were very, very independent. I mean, these guys are, are early founders of Transform. They're absolutely brilliant. So I got lucky, but it worked out. Yeah. It was like something that, I mean, I, you know, in my world, God decided this is what I should do at that time. Um, and it worked out to be a good fit. And it was a breath of fresh air because quite frankly, I was exhausted after Alcoa failed. Um, and I was honestly exhausted after driving Uber 40, 50, 60 hours a week. <laughs> yeah, it's months, crazy. Seriously. Um, that was a rough schedule. Yeah. So I'm curious, I'm curious Patrick. It's interesting. You don't see a lot of people going from traditional operators and then moving into kind of the, the technology software business. What is the difference in the, do you know there's a big difference in the culture between the two companies or, or those two different spheres of companies? Huge difference. Huge difference. I don't think it's just a huge difference because I happen to work for, you know, Amico and Sonat and Aramco and Anschutz, some reasonably straight-laced kind of places. Sure. Maybe yeah. especially Anschutz. And then I ended up at DI now in Veris, which, as I said before, is a tech company with a tech culture. But yeah, huge yeah. difference right right, right from the get-go. And and I loved it. I mean, it was, it's- I would say, I, I would think cool. just knowing you is the amount of time I have known you, it seems like it'd be a better fit for your personality at a place like that anyway. Yeah. I'm not really a, a guy who- I, I'm the kind of guy who, if, if my boss comes down the hall to do a bed check, you know, at 5 p.m. or 4 p.m. or whatever time he feels like he or she feels, it's always a he. No, no woman would ever be that dumb. The guy comes down the hall, <laughs> seriously, to do a bed check. Um, it's true. I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's like, you know what? I'm going to go take a crap every day at 5 p.m. So I'm not in my office. So he thinks I'm not there. And then I'll show back at my office at 5.05 and, you know, just to jack with him because I, I'm just sort of, I have authority issues. I think, you know, it goes back to the, we're not going to go into the story, Jeremy, but it goes back to the story about being drunk and something to do with a fire hydrant and uh, me talking to the police. <laughs> Um, pissing officer. A, <laughs> pissing <laughs> officer. Oh, pissing officer. That, that may be for a, uh, a different pod, but we're going to cut it here. Patrick, this was really, really fun. I think that you're, our, you're someone that both of us know very well. And I think this is our longest episode, but we shared a whole lot. And I just wanted to say also, you know, I shouldn't have said, you know, he was driving Uber. What I, what I should have said is he went from upstream oil and gas to transportation. And now he went to the uh, energy tech side. So we've got our uh, our multivariant personality on the line here and really appreciate your time today, man. Thanks, guys. That was fun. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Patrick.